This is the Right Now Podcast with Sarah Werner. Hello, friends. I am back again this week, and I have with me a very, very special guest. I'm super excited to introduce you to Charlie Jane Anders, who is the author of Victories Greater Than Death, as she likes to say on her (laughs) podcast, uh, which is the first book in a new young adult trilogy coming, well, that's already come out in April 2021, along with the forthcoming story collection, Even Greater Mistakes. Her other books include The City in the Middle of the Night and All the Birds in the Sky, which is the first of her books that I had read. Her fiction and journalism have appeared in Get Ready for This List, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Slate, McSweeney's, which please read that if you don't already, Mother Jones, The Boston Review, Tor.com, Tin House, Teen Vogue, Conjunctions, Wired Magazine, and other places. Yes, other places exist in addition to that thousand that I just listed. She also has a TED Talk, which you should listen to, called Go Ahead, Dream About the Future, and Well, two more things. She has a podcast called Our Opinions Are Correct, which is about sci-fi and which I've been enjoying greatly as of late. And then finally, maybe not finally, it will never be finally, there is a (laughs) wonderful new book, Never Say You Can't Survive, How to Get Through Hard Times by Making Up Stories. I'm holding this book up to the camera, even though we're not recording this. And so I'm going to put the book back down. And I would love to welcome Charlie Jane to the show. Hello. Hi. Hi. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here. I really appreciate it. I love your podcast. Oh, gosh. Thank you. The honor is all mine. And I love your podcast. I was just listening to your episode about hive minds this morning. Oh, wow. Which is like one of my favorite like things. But that's not what we're going to talk about right now. The first thing I would just love to talk to you about, Miss Charlie Jane, is... What is your favorite thing about creating? You've been creating for a long time. You've made so many amazing things. Tell me a little bit about what creativity means to you. Yeah, I mean, I think that what I really love about creativity is basically it's two related things. It's First of all, it's that thing where you just kind of get into, I don't know, you get into a kind of trance or you get into Mm -hmm. a kind of headspace. And things just kind of start coming out that you're like, oh, where did that come from? That's actually did not didn't see that coming. But that's and that's the other thing that I really love. The thing that I really love is when I surprise myself or my work surprises me when I'm just like, okay, this is what's going to happen. And this and this and this and this. And then something just comes out of like left field that completely changes everything. And you're like, well, we're doing that now because that is way more awesome. And, you know, I feel like those two things are related because. I often get the most interesting surprises when I kind of go the most into a kind of state of like not really, you know, my kind of usual like executive function brain is not just like being like, and like, instead, it's it's like the kind of part of my brain that's kind of a little bit more wild and loopy is kind of coming out with stuff that just kind of happens. I appreciate you saying that. I feel like we're just very much on the same wavelength there. One of my favorite things about writing is how you can surprise yourself and how you can just mine your brain for that magic you didn't even know was there. It's beautiful. It's just pure magic. And I love that. So I appreciate you saying that so much. It really is. And I feel like it's one of the things I've had to train myself to do. It's not something Mm. that I just was like, okay. I mean, I always got kind of lost in my own head and had my own kind of stories just kind of bubbling up in my brain, like from a very young age. But that thing of like, 
kind of going into a kind of, I, I keep wanting to use the word trance, mm. going into kind of a state and, and coming out with something that I didn't ex- expect. That's like I kind of trained myself to do. I feel like that's actually a thing that people are like, oh, well, that should come naturally because we all zone out or whatever. But I feel like, no, you have to actually train yourself to listen. You have to train yourself to kind of pay attention and, you know, and letting yourself do that and not kind of beating yourself up for like, I'm supposed to be writing. I'm just like zoning out. Tell me more about how you trained yourself to get into this state. And you call it a trance. It's, I think, also known as like state of flow. How did you train yourself to maybe not only get in there, but to stay in there and not like judge yourself or, you know, scold yourself for doing that? Man, I think it's definitely one part of it is is kind of accepting that that's part of writing and kind of letting getting out of your own way and kind of like understanding that it's not just about like putting words on the page. That's definitely part of it. I think also, I think it does connect up with intentionality and just like Mm. part of my writing practice is that I'm constantly asking myself questions about the work. I'm constantly just being like, okay, what is this? Who are these people? What's this story about? Why am I writing this story? What am I trying to get at here? And I feel like constantly like poking at myself and asking these questions does kind of shake something loose sometimes. I also think it's just, it's one of those things that, like meditation, I think it is a thing that the more you do it, the, the better you get at it. So I don't know if train is the right word, but I think that the more you allow yourself to kind of zone out and like come back, you know, and, and kind of purposefully zone out. Like it's it's weird because I don't always think I'm going to zone out and then I'm going to come up with a, an answer to this thing. It's more like I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and I just kind of just get lost in my own thoughts and then eventually something comes out of it. And I think that the more I do that, the more it becomes second nature to do that. So it's almost just like getting used to doing that all the time and kind of accepting it, but also just kind of being in the habit. I think a lot of stuff to do with writing is just about being in the habit of like doing stuff and like paying extra attention or doing or doing a certain amount of work at a certain time in a certain way, like just habits. I think habits are important. Mm. I think that's so interesting. And I always find a very interesting split there between like organization and chaos, right? So we talk about like creating habits, we talk about setting the space, but we also talk about, I like there to be surprise. So I think what I want to ask you next is, are you familiar? I'm sure you're familiar with the term pantser. So a writer who writes by the seat of their pants versus a plotter. Can you tell me a little bit about your method there and where you lean on the scale of organization and chaos? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, first of all, I hate dichotomies. And so one of the things I should, you know, in Never City Can't Survive, I do actually at some point say, we're all a little bit pantser. We're all a little bit plotter. Like some people go to more to one extreme than the other, but everybody does both. Mm. And let's, you know, I feel like this idea that there's like two groups and they're mutually exclusive. I don't like it. But I feel like in general, in my writing, I am definitely a kind of a discovery writer. I'm definitely a very kind of like, let's see where this goes. Oh, okay. I this thing happened, I'm going to follow up on this later, maybe, or else I'll have to go back and take it out later. You know, one of those two things, you know, and I just sort of like leave little breadcrumbs for myself to find. And I do, what I have done with a lot of my adult novels is I will just write a ton and kind of try to see where it's going. But I'll I'll also kind of stop. And again, I this is the thing I was talking about before. I'll stop and be like, okay, where is this story going? What do I think is going to happen next? Where do I see this kind of heading towards? And I'll have an idea in my head of what I want the ending to be usually. So I've traditionally been more of a make it up as you go along kind of person. I've also been kind of a block of marble sort of person where mm. like, for example, for all the birds in the sky, I would just write, I don't think I, I've done this for a bunch of my books. I would just write like 10,000 words of the characters hanging out to see if I could get like 
you know, one or two scenes out of that that I could like, you know, that could end up in the final book, but also just to get to know the characters better. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes I'll combine five different scenes that I wrote into one scene and I'll just kind of find a way to stitch them together, which, but, you know, I've been experimenting more with being a little bit more like, and the other thing I always have done, by the way, is I'll write the story and I'll maybe revise it a couple of times and I'll just keep outlining it. I'll outline it once I've got a second draft. I'll be like, okay, I've written it already, but what are the main things that happen in this story? Are they in the right order? Are they, is there enough space between these different story beats? What are these, what's happening? What are these characters thinking at every point in the story? Just to kind of get it stronger in my head for the revision process. But lately I've been revising, and lately I've been outlining more intensely before I write. Mm -hmm. And, you know, two things I think brought that on. One is that I, uh, I've been writing these young adult books, which are very plot heavy especially the third one. The third one, I think I finally, like I wrote outlines for the first and second books and then ended up kind of deviating somewhat. But for the third one, I think I'm very much like, no, we have to hit all these points. There's all these dominoes I set up and they have to fall in this order Yeah. or it's not going to work. And I know what the dominoes are. I know how they have to fall. So it's not so much like, oh, let's see what happens. It's like, no, I wrote a check. I got to cash it. <laughs> so there's that being much more intense about like seriously outlining the third book of the trilogy before I write it. I've already written about a third of it, but I've, I wrote, I had a, I'm working for a really serious outline. The other thing is I've been doing a little bit of, I've been dabbling a little bit in TV writing. I've been in a TV writer's room a couple of times. Yeah. Which is like a dream come true. It's like, I never, ever thought would happen for me. I thought, you know, they don't let people, they don't just let random people off the street into these <laughs> writer's rooms. You know, there's got to be some kind of security. I don't know. So um, I've been in a couple of TV writer's rooms and there it's very much like you plan out, like everything is, is planned out to an insane degree. Like you plan out the season, then you plan out each episode, then you plan out each act of the episode, then you plan out each scene and you do it for each character. You do it like character by character. Like what is this character's arc from episode to episode? What are they doing in each episode? What are they doing in this scene? And it's like, it's very detailed. And it's very much like the room collectively comes up with this very granular outline with like a million note cards. Like we just, like we killed like a forest of note cards, I think. <laughs> and you, whoever's episode it is to write gets a way to write it, but they're writing from this incredibly granular detailed outline. Am I allowed to ask what show you're working on? Well, it's, I'm done with it for now. I mean, I'm done with it for the time being for the foreseeable future, but uh, why the last man it's on FX on Hulu in September. And I wrote episode seven. I think I'm allowed to say that. And yeah, <gasps> it was a trip. It was a total trip. Because that's Brian K. Vaughn, right? It's it's based on, yeah, it's based on a comic by Brian K. Vaughn. He came and talked to the writer's room, and he was delightful. And I really love the cast. I think the cast is amazing. I think it's going to be, we've got freaking Diane Lane. It's, uh, I know, I know. I, I wrote words that were spoken by Diane oh my Lane. Gosh. Like, I can just, like, you know, I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> Are you going to have a watch party when your episode comes out? Oh, man. I hadn't even thought about that. I, I should think about that. I don't know. Maybe. Ah, oh, oh my gosh. I love that. Oh, I love this so much. And oh my gosh, you've been you've been saying so many good and beautiful and amazing things about making that transition from, you know, more discovery writing and now implementing the things that you've learned in the writer's room into the third book and the necessity of kind of structure. I like that you said cashing the checks that you wrote and making sure mm -hmm. that you're coming full circle with that. I appreciate all of this. And Gosh, I have like 90,000 questions in my head, but I think <laughs> this is the problem. It's like, 
you know, one day, one day I'm going to do like a six hour interview and it's going to be really, really fun and exhausting, but I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to ask, you know, you've written so much fiction and also so much nonfiction. What is the difference there? And I know you don't like dichotomy, so I'm interested in your thoughts on writing fiction, writing nonfiction. And then uh, what drove you to write your newest book? Yeah. Okay. So fiction versus nonfiction. I mean, I feel like there is a a big thing of people coming from journalism Mm -hmm. into fiction writing. And, you know, I kind of approached it like it's funny. Like, I think people think of me as a journalist who turned into a fiction writer. And that's not entirely how I think of myself. I think of myself as someone who always was a fiction writer, but I got work in journalism early on. And I uh, and I I worked in journalism for a long time, but I was always like, okay, fiction writing is my career. It's what I'm going to do with my life. And I was always just kind of hoping that, you know, one of these days I would get to do that as like more of a career career. But I feel like the thing about journalism is it's kind of a double edged sword because on the one hand, good journalism is about like obviously sticking to the facts, which is the thing, but also like, especially the last like 20 or 30 years, the trend in journalism has been towards more kind of like, I don't know. I don't want to say human interest, but like mm. you have to find a relatable person. You have to find someone who's going to, who's, who's, has an anecdote that can kind of anchor the piece. And like you start out with like so and so says that someone ran over their dog and then it kind of turns into a, a longer discussion of like car safety or what happens when your dog dies or something. But you find one person who has an anecdote that's like compelling that you can kind of massage into being like the opening of your piece and kind of keep coming back to. So there's, there's a lot of like creative writing tricks in journalism, but the thing about journalism is you have to, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword for if you're going into fiction, because on the one hand, journalism teaches you to be very concise and kind of get to the point and also to be disciplined and just produce a lot of words in a hurry. Sometimes Mm -hmm. like, you know, like when I was blogging, I was like, it was like, okay, you have to just write six to eight pieces a day. Oh my some of God. them are going to be kind of short, but a lot, some of them are hopefully not going to be that short. And you're going to like, they're all going to have an, a certain attitude or all, they're all going to like, they're not going to be just like, I wrote down some stuff. They're going to have like zing or whatever. And so, you know, that was good training for just like producing a lot of words. And I feel like, you know, it's funny, the longer I've been away from journalism and also I think other things like the pandemic have something to do with it. The, the, the more my kind of product, my word count per day has kind of been sliding down because I've just mm. been losing that journalistic feeling. But I mean, I, whatever. I, like I said, I don't think of word count as the measure of pro- productivity in fiction. The downside of coming from journalism into fiction is that it can make your fiction a little bit dry, a little bit like, a little <laughs> bit too much like, you know, you're reporting the facts or whatever. Or, you know, it can make you, you in journalism, you want to kind of leave you don't want to necessarily tell the reader what to think because mm-hmm. that's kind of not always, unless it's an opinion piece, you want to kind of leave them with questions, but you do want to say, okay, this is what this is about. Like you have to have, in journalism, we talk about the nut graph, which do you know what the nut graph is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The I do, graph my listeners, like, my listeners might not, so. Okay. Yeah. So the nut graph, God, so many funny terms for journalism <laughs> that I still use all the time. So the nut graph is basically, it's like, it's graph means paragraph. And nut means that it's kind of the, the 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 article in a nutshell. And usually it's like, could be the first paragraph. It's usually the second or third paragraph of the article. The nut graph is where you just say, here's what this article is going to be about. Here's the point of it. Here's why you should care. You summarize the whole thing in like two or three sentences. And, you know, you just kind of set up the reader's expectations of what the piece is going to be. And I think that's a big part of what journalism is, is just being able to boil things down and be like, okay, there's a conflict going on over water rights and here are the opposing sides and 
maybe this article won't tell you who's right, but it'll tell you why they're arguing and what they each side is saying, and it'll kind of give you, like, it'll give you a very cut and dried sense of what the issue is. Versus, like, in fiction, I feel like I was actually worried that too much blogging was going to really hurt my fiction because of the snarky tone that you have to do as a blogger. Like, the kind of, like, you know, I'm being super snarky and I'm kind of dunking on everything. And, like, you know, and I felt like... And actually, I think, in the end, it was the opposite. I think blogging helped cure me of that a little bit. Like, I think my fiction has gotten a lot less snarky since I... Had to spend eight years being snarky all day. I felt like okay, I kind of got some stuff out of my system. Or that's I think of that as my blogging voice now, so I don't use it in my fiction as much. Oh, interesting. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So that was a very long answer. So no, I love it. I love it. I'm here for the long answers. The, oh my gosh, uh, I want to ask you so many things. I love that you just went through sort of those differences between you know nonfiction and fiction and it seems like there's some similarities there too and it's interesting expectation wise you know what you thought would happen and then what actually happened and how your voice kind of emerged from all of that and how it's changed between the two mediums sorry this is just like a little recap for myself here so i know so i can ask you a, a meaningful hopefully question after this so you know, you started off in journalism. What helped you make the leap into fiction? Like what what was it that said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to write my novel. I'm going to just do this. Yeah, oh gosh. Yeah, the thing that helped me make the leap into fiction. I mean, I had been writing fiction the whole time. Like I had written I had a novel that was published at a small press in 2005 and I wrote like four more novels that never saw the light of day after that. Before All the Birds in the Sky. Um, actually, one of those four novels, I eventually turned into a novella, and it was published as a little tiny standalone book, but I cut like two-thirds of the book out of it, or more, three, three-quarters of the book out of it oh my in order to turn it into a novella. But yeah, so I think that it was just like I was just trying to break in. The whole mm-hmm. time I was doing journalism, I was trying to break in as a fiction writer. I got hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of rejections for my mm-hmm. short fiction. I got you know, I don't know how many rejections from agents. I think I, at some point in, in the book, the new book, Never Say You Can't Survive, which I guess you asked me about before and I forgot to talk about that. But I think in that book I talk about, like, you know, I kind of counted up the number of rejections, but I got a ton of rejections. And honestly, it was just, I was just plugging away until finally I just randomly saw that Tor.com, which is this, you know, website that's affiliated with my publisher, but also publishes a lot of short fiction on their site. I saw that they were having an open submission period and I was like, well, this is not going to work out, but I'll just try them with a story. And I tried them and I got basically, I got a a note back almost immediately randomly. Like they just, you know, Patrick Nelson Hayden wrote back to me and was like, I really like this story. I I think you need to tweak the ending slightly, but otherwise I want it. And I was like, what? And I just, my head exploded. And then the second piece that I published with tour.com, which was like by far, I want to say it was the highest profile place that had been published before then. I'd, I'd been in some, pretty high profile anthologies, but this was definitely the highest profile, I think. My second piece with them was the story Six Months, Three Days, and that won the Hugo Award. And at that point, that was like, that was kind of, I was launched after that. And then eventually I did, you know, sell all the birds of the sky. Um, So that was really the process. And like, you know, it was just, it was one of those things where like people were coming up to me and being like, oh, I didn't know you wrote fiction. And I'm like, that's my like the main thing I do. It's just that I hadn't nobody had noticed until that point. I had published over a hundred short stories before I got that one that wrote that one the Hugo, but nobody had seen the other hundred, you know? Wow. This blows my mind and and 
I don't know if you enjoy talking about success or, or what that even means to you, but it's it's so fascinating from someone who I've been reading io9, gosh, since I graduated college. I, I've it's just been this huge pillar of of sci-fi news for me. And so like I don't know, when I when your novel came out, All the Birds in the Sky, I now know that that was not your first novel. It just blows my mind that you had difficulty finding an agent. I'm like, she's famous. Like, have you not read io9? Like, this is a huge deal. And it's just so interesting from someone from the outside who like sees you as this like huge deal. And it's like, how? How is this hard for you? And so, gosh, I'm interested. What does it mean for you to be successful now? Yeah, I mean, I mean, first of all, I think that the agent thing, you know, it's I always say it's not just about fight, you know this. It's not about finding an agent. It's finding about the, the mm. right agent. And like there were agents who were definitely interested in me, especially, you know, after IO9 became a big deal, after I won the Hugo. There were definitely agents who were like, Oh yeah, send me stuff. And then I would send them stuff, they'd be like, Yeah, not this. This is this isn't and like I feel like that's good. It's good that yeah. they didn't just like say, Well, I could probably sell this because you've got a platform. Mm. They were like you know, you want an agent who you want agents to be honest and be like, okay, I'm not connecting to this. This book is not connecting to me. And I think I tend to be kind of a silly writer. Sometimes I'm kind of a funny writer. And I think that uh, there is a certain amount of, you know, well documented resistance in some parts of the book world, you know, including among agents and, and some, mm. some editors towards things that are really kind of like silly and funny because they, I think it's just, it's such a crapshoot. I mean, I know, from going to a million comedy shows that like it's really hard like sometimes a comedian will just bomb you know humor is so subjective mm. like and some people might be like this is the funniest comedian ever comedian ever and everybody else might be like i don't get it you know so i feel like <laughs> there's a reason why it's hard to sell humor because humor is super subjective mm. uh versus romance or I, romance is also really hard but i think that you can kind of tell like is this are these characters clicking is it gonna you know People understand romance in some, in a, I'm going to get in trouble for saying that maybe, but I don't know. I think it's just, I think humor is just hard, mm -hmm. but yeah, I define success. I mean, there's obviously like, I get sucked into the same stuff everybody else gets sucked into about mm -hmm. like who is, you know, all these like artificial measures of success, all of these art artificial, you know, kind of metrics that we all kind of markers that we all kind of get stuck on. But I think that, when I'm happiest, and I, I do talk about this in Never Say You Can't Survive, what I'm, when I'm happiest is when I kind of stick to the definition of success I came up with early on, which is it's twofold. One is that I get to be associated with people that I really like and admire, who I think they're awesome, and I'm just like glad that they want to hang out with me or collaborate with me or whatever. And like the the quality of the people that I get to be associated with is is a measure of success for me. Like, and hmm. but the other thing is just you know I get to keep doing this. I get to keep writing and getting published and having people read my stuff. And so those are the definitions I try to stick to versus like, you know, you have to get 20 widgets or you have to get on this particular list or I don't know. Yeah. I feel like it gets really toxic. Oh, oh, I love to hear you say that. And I, I love to hear that. Oh gosh, not every success metric is necessarily healthy. I, boy, do I appreciate you saying that. And it is really hard to get sucked into that stuff. Gosh, I'm so torn. And I want to ask more about like vanity metrics and then what's actually meaningful. But I also want to ask about your beautiful new book, Never Say You Can't Survive. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, tell me about what compelled you or drew you or led you or what have you to creating this book. Yeah, I mean, so as you probably know, when I was working at io9 back in the day, I used to do these advice, these writing advice columns yes. uh, at io9. I learned so much called, from you. Oh, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> Dang, that is insane. So I used to do these writing advice columns that were called free advice. And I think that they were all under the free advice tags. So you can probably find them there. And uh, yeah, and that was really fun. And I always wanted to do a book of writing advice. But what I found after I left io9, even though I kind of had like a handshake agreement with some of the folks from what had previously been Gawker Media about like allowing me to kind of use bits and pieces of my stuff that writing columns that I written for io9 in a book mm. like what I found was when I got out of when I left io9 and was like maybe I'll try to do a book of writing advice now uh what I found was that the market for writing advice is actually really crowded especially science fiction writing advice there's oh. a lot there's like a ton of books out there like you know Orson Scott Card wrote one Ursula K. Le Guin wrote one you know there's there Toby, Tobias Buckle I think wrote one there's a bunch that are published by like you know Writer's Digest and stuff and they're all really great and there's a lot of really great advice out there for writers, including in speculative fiction. And so, you know, my first idea for a book, which was basically like sci-fi writing 101, more or less, that wasn't going to be the title, but that was what it was going to be. That just ended up not like it ended, It became obvious once we talked to people and kind of my agent kind of put some feelers out that that was not going to work hmm. and that that was not going to have a big enough audience. And so I kind of put that aside and was like, well, maybe I'll do a writing advice book one of these days. And then in the meantime, Sometime around 2017, I think, or yeah, around 2017, I was talking at a writer's conference and they asked me to give a keynote, which was extremely flattering. And so I wrote this talk called Never Say You Can't Survive that was kind of, it was an early version of the opening essay from this book. And I, so I gave that talk at this writer's conference and then I kind of kept giving it at like other conferences here and there and, you know, around and other kind of writing events. And I kept kind of refining it and, you know, adding to it and kind of poking at it. And it just it was during that era, during the era that kind of started 2017-ish, it felt like a lot of us were really struggling and it felt like a lot of us were really having a hard time. And so I was having all these conversations about, like, how can writing help us get through this, but also how can we keep creating through this? And it felt like there was a way to talk about that in a book while also talking about the other stuff that I really felt was important to me about writing that I hadn't necessarily seen in quite so many words elsewhere. And just, you know, I felt like I could use that as a framework to kind of talk about like my philosophy of writing a little bit. And so that was kind of what I did. And I, so I went to the folks at tour.com in early 2020 and was like, look, I want to write these essays for your website. And, but I want to publish them as a book afterwards. And, you know, if, if you all want to publish them as a book afterwards, that's amazing. Otherwise, can we work out a thing yeah. where maybe I can shop it around elsewhere? And they were like, they were all in and they were super excited and they were pretty much committed right away to publishing the book version, which was awesome. And it was actually, you know, during 2020, which was, you know, probably the hardest year of my life personally, mm-hmm. it was actually kind of therapeutic to be writing these essays. It was like, okay, I had like a weekly deadline I kind of knew what the essays were. I had a very detailed, like I had a very detailed document that was like every single essay with like a million thoughts that I'd written down for it. So I had kind of very rough scribbly drafts of all the essays, but having that weekly deadline was really good for me. And just having, forcing myself to kind of, while I was struggling with a really tough year 
forcing myself to think about like, okay, here's all the ways that writing can help you get through this. It was kind of, I was kind of helping myself as much as anybody else, I feel like. And it was actually, it was, it turned out to be a really good thing to do. I think it helped me get through 2020 in one piece. I love that. I would love to ask just for folks who haven't read your book. And can you tell us real quick when it comes out? It comes out August 17th. So pretty <gasps> soon, actually. Oh my gosh. Okay. So pretty soon, August 7th, August 17th, 2021. We're in 2021 now. Uh, so I'll have a link in the show notes for that. But can you just tell us a little bit about this premise about I love hearing about writing as a survival mechanism. And can you tell us a little bit about the link between creativity and survival? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a huge link. And I think you kind of put your finger on it, which is that uh, we need to be creative in order to survive. We're going to need creative solutions to a lot of these problems we're facing. Mm. And part of what I talk about in the book is, you know, at its most basic level, it's this thing of like the real world really, you know, sucks. and Part of how I deal with that is I'll sit down and just like marathon, like I'll binge watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine or Ted Lasso or, you know, some other show that's kind of like nice and fun and not going to remind me of like the sheer horror outside of my, my windows yeah. and where we're just starting wildfire season here. So it's, it's super extra exciting. But yeah, so the real world really sucks. And you kind of, one way you can deal with the real world is by just losing yourself in a, in a story that someone else created, like getting reading a book, you know, watching a movie, kind of just getting lost in the narrative. But what I feel like, and this gets back to the thing I was talking about before with like the zoning out and the trance and the kind of flow and stuff, is that when you really get into writing, it's like that. It's mm. like binge watching a TV show, only more mm. because it's coming out of you and you're kind of both lost in it and controlling it to some extent. So you get to actually kind of have that thing of like being like, okay, I am kind of Get, shutting out the world and just living with these fictional people in their world. And like, they're the people I'm dealing with now. But you also have that thing of like, it's very therapeutic to feel like, okay, I can actually shape how this is going. And I can kind of understand this on a deeper level. And, you know, I kind of talk about it as like the characters are almost like your imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, you can kind of spend time with these imaginary friends. And I talk, I kind of get into ways to do this in the book. And you also get to kind of maybe deal with some of the stuff that's bothering you like obliquely by kind of writing about it without writing about it. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of be like, well, what I would like to do is be able to tell the story of what I'm dealing with right now, but also have something that's happening 500 years ago that kind of connects up with it so that I can be like, well, it's not just this one moment. There's other moments that affect the moment we're having right now. And having those two moments alongside each other helps me to get some perspective or to kind of, you know, illuminate some stuff that's not obvious if you're just living in this moment right now. Yeah. And I get into that and kind of techniques for doing that. The other thing that I think is really important, and then I'm going to shut up, is I talk a lot about being okay with uncertainty and having mental flexibility, because I think part of what happens when you're in the middle of a crisis and like, you know, there's a really contested election and a plague and a bunch of other stuff going on, part of what happens when you're in the middle of a crisis is that you have to keep changing in response to new information. Mm. Okay. We're, we all, nobody's allowed to wear masks. Oh, we all have to wear masks. Okay. This thing is now it's this, now it's the opposite. Like, and like, I think that when you're writing a story, you have stuff where things in the story are shifting around as you're writing it. You're surprising yourself. Maybe something you write didn't make sense. You have to go back and change it. Like, you know, your beta readers are like, 
okay, this part just came out of nowhere. You have to explain why this happened. And I think that writing helps you to kind of deal with uncertainty in the real world because you're trying to figure out the story and that is a certain amount of uncertainty, even if you outlined, even if you had a great outline. Mm. And understanding your own role and how your own agency can play out in both the real world and the world you're creating. Yeah, exactly. I love that. I love that so much. Yeah. Oh, I love this. I love this. Well, let's just go, let's just keep going with this. And let me ask you, can you give us a quick plug for where people can find you and where they can purchase all of your books and connect with you and all of that good stuff and also listen to your podcast because you have a lot of cool stuff out there. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so my website is charliejane.com and Charlie Jane on Twitter. And if you go to charliejane.com, it's got links to all my books. And then the podcast is at ouropinionsarecorrect.com. And we also have a Twitter handle at OOACpod. So yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, good. I wanted to make sure we got that in here. And now we can kind of go off the rails again uh, with, with some more questions about creativity, just real quick. And then uh, and then we'll wrap up. Just FYI, all of the links to the places and platforms that Charlie J just mentioned are in the show notes for today's episode. So please go check those out. Click those links. Listen to Our Opinions Are Correct. Been, again, really enjoying that kind of a deep dive into sci-fi and what makes it work and maybe not work. Oh, gosh, I want to go back to talking about you wanted to write a writing a book about writing advice. Is there a piece of truly terrible writing advice that you've ever received? Oh, man, I mean, I feel like I've gotten a bunch of kind of writing advice that I personally didn't find helpful, like that you have to always introduce the main character of your story in the first paragraph, which I find, you know, is not always it, it sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Um, I feel like that was a piece of writing advice I got early on. I don't know. I mean, I feel like, yeah, I mean, I dunk on Heinlein's famous writing advice sometimes. So Robert A. Heinlein, who was writing at a really different time, like part of it is that he was writing during a time when people were very prolific and often, you know, it showed, <laughs> let's just say. <laughs> and so Heinlein has these rules for writing, which people will still have some of his quote where it's like, you know, Basically, it boils down to never edit or revise your work. Just send it out. And I think what he meant is maybe once once you're kind of reasonably happy with it, just send it out. Like, I don't know if he meant never, like, make any changes at all once you've made a first draft. But it kind of, people quote it as, like, basically, like, once you've written a thing, just send it to an editor. Don't, don't bother to re revise it. Don't, you know, don't do any... Don't kick the tires. Don't have beta readers. Don't show it to anybody. Just mm. like send it to an editor. And I think that was probably good advice for like 1950 or whatever. But it's not great advice for now because, you know, I think in speculative fiction, at least it's gotten very competitive. And, you know, there's a certain kind of polished standard of writing that people expect. And I think that, you know, people sending out their first drafts is not going to end well for anybody, I don't think. <laughs> I don't either. Um, and sort of along those lines, then, do you do you have a favorite piece of writing advice, either that you've received or that you've created, that you love most to share? That you, is that grammatically correct? That you love most to share with other aspiring I mean, yeah, writers? Yeah, that is actually that is actually <laughs> grammatically correct. Correct. Yeah. You know, early on in my in my writing career, I got a story into this literary magazine uh, called Ziziva, mm. which is like 
if you live in the Bay Area, it's it's a big deal. Otherwise, I don't know if it is or not. But uh, I've heard of it. But, <laughs> okay, yay. Okay, cool. And the editor of his is about the time, like, spend an hour on the phone with me, which is kind of amazing to me even now that he just did that and kind of talked through my story with me. And, you know, he was kind of, he could be a lot, that guy. He could be a lot. But he did actually give me really good advice about kind of getting to the emotional core of the story. And he kind of introduced me to the idea of like the emotional core of the story and how you have to get to that and find it and kind of really kind of tap into it in order to make the story work. And in in this story, as with so many of my stories, it was about the emotional core was a particular relationship. And I feel like the emotional core is the thing that kind of drives the story into a certain extent or that the characters care about the most or that you know the reader is going to hopefully care about the most or that's like the thing that we're all kind of caring about that's making things happen in the story and it's the more kind of emotional that emotional core is the more the story is going to feel like it's alive and on fire and all that stuff and so he kind of Mm. really talked me through okay you have this relationship that feels like it's at the heart of the story but i need to feel more of this character's longing for this other character and i need to feel more of their kind of emotional connection and it was, you know, it was actually incredibly good advice. It was like, it really kind of changed how I thought about writing. Mm. And it it really drove me to kind of try harder to get to that that emotional core. And it took a long time for me to get to get better at that. I don't know if I'm good at it, but get better at it. I still struggle with that to this day. Boy, I really appreciate that. I feel like we don't talk about that enough. I feel like there's so much, you know, talking about logic and roles and all that stuff. We don't talk enough about emotion and, and feelings and really what's at the at the most powerful heart of what it is we create and why we create and why we love to lose ourselves in these stories, you know? Going surfing yeah. on someone else's feelings is just so powerful. It really is. And it's it's so hard to do. Yeah. Like it's really hard to do and like I'm editing the second book of the YA trilogy right now and I'm like, okay, I have another scene where characters are upset about something and how do I say that in a way that I didn't already say that before? Like, you know, how, what's a, what's a way that I could talk about this that feels like really powerful and fresh, that's really connected to this person's emotions. And often it's a mixture of like how you describe what they're feeling or like how you describe the kind of sensations, but also just how they act and like what's going through their head, like their internal monologue, all of it. And like, you know, I find it just so challenging, like Mm -hmm. all the birds of the sky, there were some parts of that book where you know, my editor, Miriam, who's a freaking powerhouse, really had to kind of point out parts where it's like, okay, this should be a really emotional moment, and it's not, and it needs to have more, like, emotion to it. And, like, for example, there's a part where, I won't get too spoilery, but yeah, yeah. there's a part where Lawrence and Patricia have been estranged for a while, and Patricia shows up at Lawrence's house uh, to give him something. And, the you know, the draft of that scene, like, this was probably not, this is not my first draft. It was like my fourth or fifth draft. The version I handed it to my editor, she came back and was like, yeah, you know, I don't feel this at all. This isn't really, the emotion is not coming out. And this needs to be, you need to take a beat or two longer with this and just really kind of live in this moment. And like, and I had to really, like, it took a day of like just poking at that scene and trying to get like, just squeeze a little bit more emotion out of it. Wow. Oh my gosh. Because it's like, you know, if you receive, so I was in like website design for years and, you know, the number one criticism you hear is this needs to pop more. And it's like, okay, what does that mean? Right. And so what does it mean to infuse that emotion? Like, and I know we're creeping up on our time limit, but 
poking at the scene, prodding at it. Did did you have to get more empathetic uh, with your characters or what did that look like for you? It's a mixture. It's a mixture of like getting into my characters' heads more and like kind of acting out the scene almost in their voices sometimes. Like oftentimes mm-hmm. I'll get to that point where I'm like, okay, this scene, I it's as good as I can make it in my head, but if I can get more into their heads, I can just make it like, just kind of give them a little bit more of like a realistic reaction because oftentimes the first like three or four drafts of a scene is just like the characters being robots a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, I have to like kind of get in the shower or whatever or whatever and act this scene out in the different voices almost and just be like, okay, what is this person really thinking in this scene? What are they really feeling? It's also just like trying to, I mean, making things pop is kind of a thing I think about a lot in terms of fiction. And often a scene pops when it feels just charged and mm-hmm. it feels, but it also, it feels like we're not just going through the motions and having like the scene that you've seen a hundred times before and other things. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you just have to find the emotional truth of that scene. Something I talk a lot about in, in Never Say You Can't Survive is this notion that writing is acting. That when you're a writer, you're kind of an actor and you have to get into character and you have to like submerge yourself a little bit in your character's head. and but I find that often that happens in revision. I think in revision, mm. I kind of, I get to a place where I'm finally like, okay, what's the real emotional truth here? And how can I convey that in a way that I haven't maybe done a million times before? And it just, you know, finding something dramatic and different kind of, I don't know. It's, it's always a struggle. It's never easy. It never gets easier. It's not something where you're like, okay, now I know how to do this. And I'm just going to do it over and over again. It's like every time. You, know, I, you have to just keep reinventing it. I appreciate you saying that so much, that Ooh. saying that it never gets easier because it doesn't. And I keep waiting for things to get easier and it doesn't. Thank, thank you for saying that. That's just, I appreciate. My pleasure. I appreciate those truths. Miss Charlie Jane, you are beautiful, wonderful, invigorating. You're just, your energy is fantastic. Ooh. I wish that everyone listening could see your beautiful pink hair right now. It's just so alive and so wonderful. Thank you so much for gracing us with your presence here today. I'm just so happy to have you here. Thank you. It was absolutely my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast. And this was just such a wonderful conversation. And have a great rest of your week. Thank you. And bye for now. Bye. Bye. 